It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the history of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that over time have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 23, Overachieving, Overisolus, and Holland vs. Hansa. At the beginning of the 15th century, towns in the Overstift, the region which mostly makes up today's modern province of Overijssel, but at the time was controlled by the Prince Bishop of Utrecht, reached their medieval zenith, largely because of their involvement and affiliation with the Hanseatic League. Strategically positioned along the Eisel River, which connected the Zuiderzee to the Rhine, towns such as Diefenter, Kampen, and Zwolle were able to take part in the sprawling trade network of northern German cities which dominated trade over the North and Baltic Seas. But although the trading connections brought increased power and wealth to the Overstick region, it was also here that a new spiritual movement, more based on austerity and known as modern devotion, was founded by a man called Gert Grote who rejected the materialism and excesses of the church and its clergy and called for sober, inward religious reflection. His followers, known as the brothers and sisters of the common life, would spread throughout the Low Countries and parts of Germany as well. They would create schools, they would copy and produce books, and by doing this, increased literacy levels throughout the society. Krauter's most famous follower, Thomas of Kempen, would write one of the most influential devotional books of Christianity, The Imitation of Christ. So, for a time, the Overstick area was rocking along on both a grassroots, cultural, and internationally commercial level. But the privileged position that the Overijssel towns enjoyed was to be broken when the rising towns of Holland particularly Amsterdam, went to war with the Hanseatic League and through piratical actions broke its near monopoly on the trade of fish, lumber, and grain from the Baltics. From this, Holland would emerge as an even greater regional power. At the end of the last episode, as we were explaining the reasoning behind our including or excluding certain details in our fictional historical detour, we spoke briefly about the brethren of the common life. We suggested that in a future episode, we would talk about them in more detail, though we made no promises to do so. But, surprise, we are about to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that we would be extremely poor politicians, because instead of breaking promises, we're actually going to fulfill one that we didn't even make in the first place. We are going to do this for two reasons. The first 
is that we are well aware that up until this point in our journey through the history of the Netherlands, we have been extremely neglectful of the Overstikt region, and have even outraged people from the region, called Overisolers, who have written to us pointing it out. At the forefront of our mind is keeping the Overisolers, who at the time of recording are, like everyone in Overisolation, happy. The second is that as they spread through the Low Countries from their base in Defenter, the brothers and sisters of the common life helped lay the foundations for the further rapid economic development of the entire region throughout the 15th century, through their efforts in promoting literacy and education. This would have a very large, if largely unrecognized, impact on how the future Dutch nation would emerge. So, in this episode, we are going to have a look at the Overstikt and at the Brethren of the Common Life. Furthermore, however, in the late 1430s, a trade war erupted between Holland and the so-called Wendik cities of the Hanseatic League, which we are also going to explore. This war and what resulted would see Holland emerge stronger than it had ever been, and the seeds for some of the pillars of the future United Dutch nation would be planted in the process. But the future United Dutch nation will be so much more than just Holland. And even though in the greater narrative of Dutch history, Holland is going to take a dominant role, we think it is important to consider more grassroots level influences from places as unheralded as the Overstikt, but that were happening concurrently and continually, such as the educational impact of the Brethren of the Common Life on wider Dutch society. Let's just refresh ourselves on the basics of what exactly the Overstikt was. Located on the eastern shores of the Zuiderzee, the Overstikt comprised the modern-day Dutch provinces of Overijssel and Drenthe. It was mostly a rural region which was bordered by Friesland to its north, the Bishopric of Munster to its east, and Gelders to its south. The most important geographical feature of the Overstikt is unsurprisingly for the Low Countries, a river known as the Isel. The Isel was once upon a time fed by a river now known as the Older Isel, the Old Isel. In our beloved swamp, people have always been very good at calling things exactly what they are. It is speculated that Roman general Nero Claudius Drusus, when he wasn't busy, quote, devastating much country, end quote, whilst visiting our swamp, engaged in a piece of early aquatic engineering and created a connection between the Rhine and the Isle to help move troops into the region. Since then, the Isle has been one of the three major branches of the Rhine River as it meanders its way from Germany into the Low Countries. Although the Isle originally fed into the swampy lake area around the former Lake Flavo, after the violent stormy creation of the Zuiderzee in 1070, the river emptied into that body of water instead. This would prove a strategic location for burgeoning trade towns, being a route between the Zuiderzee and the River Rhine, and this gave impetus for such towns to form along its banks, the most commercially important early ones being Kampen, Defenter, and Zwolle. 
the Overstick, together with the Niederstick, which is today's modern province of Utrecht, formed part of the Prince Bishopric of Utrecht. However, this was a rather awkward situation, given that the lands of Gelders completely separated the Overstick from the rest of Utrecht. Imagine the domains of the Prince Bishops of Utrecht as being like two slices of bread, and Gelders as being a really tasty hot dog nestled in between them. As we have seen in previous episodes, the rulers of Gelders were just as ambitious and militarily inclined as most other rulers in the Low Countries tended to be, and in the 1330s, they actually managed to take control of the Overstict temporarily, before it was once again ceded to Utrecht a decade or so later. Over the next 200 years, the Overstict would see battles for control of it between the Bishops of Utrecht, the Dukes of Helders, Counts of Holland, Dukes of Burgundy, and various random Germanic knights. The origins of the modern devotion movement and the Brethren of the Common Life can be traced back to its founder, Gert Grote. He was born in Deventer in the Overstict, Deventer being one of these big trade towns on the Isle. He was born in 1340 and was the only son of a wealthy patrician cloth merchant. His father, Valner, was in the ruling elite of the town and served as the city's treasurer on two occasions during Grote's childhood. It is reasonable to assume that young Gert was being prepared to follow in his father's footsteps. As we are by now well aware, life in the 14th century was unforgiving at the best of times, and in 1350, not one, but both of Grote's parents died of the Black Plague. Now suddenly orphaned, he was put in the care of an uncle and sent to study at the famous Latin school in Deventer, before then being sent at the age of 15 to Paris to further his study at the Sorbonne. This was funded by the wealth that he had inherited after the death of his parents. Krauter graduated from the Sorbonne at 18 years of age, becoming a Master of Arts, and although the full details of the next few years of his life are largely unknown, it is believed that he continued living and working in Paris for the next few years, studying medicine, theology, astrology, and canon law. On two separate occasions during his time in France, he acted as a representative of the town of Deventer to the anti-pope in Avignon, and he eventually earned positions working as a church administrator, first in Aachen in 1368, and then in Utrecht in 1372. So Grote grew up privileged. He had financial means, he was extremely well educated, and through his early work life, he would have learned how to wheel and deal with the elite of the church hierarchy, knowing whose hands to shake and which wheels to grease in order to maneuver his way up the ladder. Up until this point, his life was much like that of many others who operated in that upper realm of the social spectrum. But sometime around 1372-1374, Krote experienced some kind of life-changing epiphany. According to one story, Krote suffered from a severe illness which brought him to the edge of death. A priest was brought in to give him the last rites, but upon seeing books in Krote's house, which he claimed contained black magic, 
He refused to perform the ritual. Upon this, Crowther had no other option but to take his books to the main square of Defender, known as De Brink, had them publicly burned, and thereafter made a full and unexpected recovery from his illness. Following this, he decided to give up his former lavish lifestyle and start afresh on a new spiritual path. Whatever the veracity of this story may be, it is clear that something majorly altered his outlook on life, because in 1374 he had his family home in the city of Defenter transformed into the Meister Herzhaus, a kind of hospice or shelter wherein poor women could live and serve God. There they would engage in devotional prayer, care for the sick, support themselves through manual labor like sewing or weaving, and were free to leave if they wished. He then went and spent a large part of the next five years living in a Carthusian monastery called Monikhauser, near Arnhem. While there, he never took vows, he didn't become an official monk, but he must have spent hours undergoing intense personal reflection, analyzing his life up until then and where he could perhaps change his ways. Furthermore, Crota also clearly thought about the material body by which people connected to God, the church, considering its current state and whether it truly served the purpose that it was meant to. At some stage, he came to find himself filled with criticisms towards it. According to Fun Engen's Sisters and Brothers of the Common Life, Crota found his old lifestyle, quote, more unclean than he had words for, end quote. Instead, he resolved that the way to live a truly Christian life was to imitate Jesus Christ and his initial followers, and he set about writing down resolutions on how this might be done. He saw all kinds of corruption in the Catholic Church if viewed through this more austere lens, and he now turned against those corruptions. He determined that the church was being tainted by the self-interest of the priests, the bishops, and the clergy, who were taking positions purely to gain personal wealth, property, and prestige. He targeted pluralism, which had become common practice. This is where people would attain multiple benefices, salaried positions within the church, but the actual work of which they would farm out to others for a lower amount. Basically, it was rich people getting richer for nothing by manipulating the mechanisms of church administration. He also found it incongruous how many monks lived lives of luxury inside monasteries while coming outside every day to beg money on the streets. Crota was vehemently against the taking of concubines by priests, which was another practice not too difficult to find. He believed that what was important was one's own personal connection to God, and he wanted to get away from what he saw as the worldly and corrupting distractions within the church to focus on the true meaning of piety and Christianity. In 1379, he was encouraged to go visit the Prince Bishop of Utrecht, and perhaps surprisingly, the Prince Bishop showed an interest in the things that Rota was saying. He was allowed to become a deacon, a kind of traveling lay preacher who would go from town to town in the Nederstick and the Overstick, giving the word to crowds of people. He spoke in Defenters, Volo, Utrecht, Amersfoort, Delft, and he began setting up houses and schools across the region. 
He worked with a man named Florentius Radovane in creating a house in Deventer where teams of young priests could copy books. His most famous work is a book of hours, a prayer book, written in the Dutch language though, not in Latin, which made it possible for common people to read and to work on their own personal spiritual development. In so doing, he attracted both followers and detractors. You might very well imagine that a bunch of priests living deluxe lifestyles with their mistresses did not exactly like the message that Grote was spreading. In 1383, enough pressure was put on the Prince Bishop of Utrecht by opponents of Grote that he was compelled to cease allowing unordained deacons like Grote from preaching. Within 12 months of that ban, Grote's remarkable life came to an end when he succumbed to the same fate that his parents had, actually. The plague. Pandemics, they just constantly have to get in the way of a good story, don't they? But although Grote himself died, his message did not. His ideas resonated with many people. It is important to remember that the Catholic Church at this point was in a moment of crisis. There were two men running around, both claiming to be Pope, and the abuses which Grote had pointed out must have been glaringly obvious to many. By writing in the local vernacular, he managed to bring the message of Christ's life and the ideals which he thought one should live by in order to have a virtuous life to a much larger audience. Some historians have suggested that by doing this, Grote can be viewed as a forerunner to Martin Luther and the Reformation. Others point out that this is probably going too far. You could call Grote a reformer. It does seem though that he was more interested in attacking the morality of the clergy and trying to bring about change within the established church rather than going after the theological foundations which underpinned the church itself, as Luther would do. Whatever the case may be though, the movement which Grote created became known as Devotio Moderna, or Modern Devotion. There were three separate branches of the devout, as they became known. Women who Grote had housed in his former family home in Deventer laid the foundations for what would become the Sisters of the Common Life, and an analogous group made up of men became the Brethren of the Common Life. The third branch, set up by his colleague Florentius Radovain, was a more formally organized monastery at Windersheim close to the town of Zwolle. The brethren and the sisters of the common life were communities of mostly lay people who took no vows, yet dedicated themselves to a lifestyle of doing charitable work, taking care of the sick, reading, and studying the Bible as well as other religious texts. They would copy books and they set up schools to educate the masses. Although the first of the houses set up by the brethren of the common life were based in Deventer and Zwolle, from there, they spread throughout the Low Countries and into Germany. Houses were opened, amongst others, in Amersfoort in 1395, in Munster in 1401, Delft in 1403, Den Bosch in 1424, Duisburg in 1426, Groningen in 1430, Gouda in 1445, and Utrecht in 1474. Unlike monks and nuns who lived cloistered lives, Locked behind large walls and separated from the societies around them, members of the Brethren of the Common Life 
were encouraged to take an active role in the wider community. Their efforts, therefore, in regards to education are famous to this day. Many members worked in prestigious educational institutions and the schools in which they were influential were renowned for the quality of education. They attracted the best scholars of the day. But in addition to this, they also enabled poorer children and children from rural areas to attend the public schools in towns. The houses which they created also acted as a kind of dormitory for these children. The brothers would pay the school fees of those who could not afford it, as well as offering them tutoring and spiritual guidance. The schools run by the Brethren of the Common Life were also simply huge. They reached everyone. It's estimated that by the middle of the 15th century, up to a quarter of the residents in Diefenter and Zwolle had been taught or were being taught by the Brethren. In other towns, they set up boarding schools, which, to be fair, also became renowned for their strict discipline. Many famous pupils attended schools run by the Brethren. These included Desiderius Erasmus, although admittedly he did not have many nice things to say about them, writing once in a letter that he found his stay at the school in Den Bosch a waste of time because he knew more than his teachers did. Martin Luther himself also attended a school run by the Brethren at Magdeburg, and Thomas of Kempen was taught at the Latin school in Defenter, which was led by one of the brothers. Kempen's book, The Imitation of Christ, lays out the principles of the modern devotion movement and provides spiritual instruction. It would become one of the most read Christian devotional books of all time, still thought to be the second most read book in Christianity to this day, behind only the Bible. In their essay, Why Did the Netherlands Develop So Early? Terveil, Webink, and Akchumak claim that the most important legacy of the Brethren of the Common Life was their role in building what they called human capital in the Netherlands. Through the copying of books and eventually printing after the invention of the press, by creating educational institutions and promoting learning for all, the Brethren of the Common Life helped raise the level of literacy in the Low Countries to a much higher level than other contemporary and nearby societies. In the Netherlands in 1500, the number of book editions created per capita was 25% higher than in Germany. It was three times higher than France, around eight times higher than in Spain and Portugal, and ten times higher than England. In addition to this, the presence of a brethren of the common life house would also play a strong role in a city's ability to grow during this period, between 1400 and, let's say, 1560. Those cities with a brethren house grew on average 35% more than those without. This gives very strong support to the suggestion that the presence of a brethren of the common life house fueled economic growth in towns and across the low countries in this time period. Although the aim of the Brethren had been to help promote people's inner religious journeys, this boom in literacy then created a higher demand for other books too, not necessarily just religious texts. People in the Low Countries were thus now able to read tracts which were critical of the established church, the society in general, and also authorities. They could write, they could read contracts which would further help them in their trade, 
In this way, what Tavail, Webink, and Akchamak argue is that the brethren of the common life in general helped drive the Low Countries forward by creating a society of people who were literate and able to communicate and spread ideas. This would, of course, set them further along the path of trying to attain greater individual power and freedoms. Ideas of self-governance took root in this fertile ground. Eventually, this would create the conditions for revolt in the Low Countries against the Habsburgs. That's a massive spoiler alert, though. Apologies. We are getting closer, it's got to be said. So this incredibly important, grassroot-level, cultural tide of literacy and education sprung out of the Ofer Isle region, the Ofer Stick, that up until now much neglected region in our story. So we hope that you are now happy Ofer Islers. And for everyone else, then, yeah, why not? Let's do it. Late medieval public schooling and drastically increased pre-modern rates of literacy. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Also bet you didn't know that an ad break is about to happen. We'll see you on the other side when we will move on to explore the Holland and Hanseatic War. The main towns of the Overstick, being Zwolle and Deventer, were at their commercial peak in the 15th century largely because of their engagement with the Hanseatic League, that northern German trade network which we have met several times already on our journey. Like we mentioned at the beginning, the fact that Deventer, Zwolle and Kampen were located along the Eisel River meant that they were positioned on a strategic route which connected the Zuiderzee with the Rhine River. Fairs were held in Deventer every year, where traders from the northern German cities around the Baltic Sea would be able to meet counterparts from towns along the Rhine, like Cologne. Here, goods such as turf, lime, herring, rye, butter, wine, and wood were all bought and sold and shipped in and shipped out. The real power of the Hanseatic League derived from the commercial might of the so-called Wendic cities which were Lübeck, Hamburg, Lüneberg, Rostock, Wismar, and Stralsund. Spreading out from this northern part of the German Empire, over centuries they and their merchants had managed to establish offices and agents in marketplaces and commercial centers around Europe, and their strength and influence flourished because they connected the goods and people of different corners of Western and Northern Europe. Over the centuries they had built trading alliances with Powerful groups and individuals, with city patriciates from Flanders to Venice, with monarchs and princes and high-ranking clergy, with other merchants of varying levels of influence. And so by this time in the 1400s, they had established a near-monopoly access to the source of their strength, the Baltic markets, where so much grain in particular, but also fur, fish, wood, and much else came from. Before the 14th century, few sailors dared to sail through the treacherous waters around Denmark and into the passage called the Danish Sound. The early strength of the Wendic cities, especially Lübeck and Hamburg, was that they were located on either side of the skinniest bit of the Jutland Peninsula. Goods would move from the North Sea to the Baltic, 
by being taken overland from Hamburg to Lübeck and vice versa. The Hanseatic League expanded by coming to trade deals with various towns and even began projecting their power through warfare. After the Second Danish-Hunza War ended in 1370 with the Treaty of Stralsund, the Hunza were essentially given control of the Danish Sound and facilitated the granting of privileges for foreign boats who wanted to go and deal with people in deep northern Norway. Like all labels of the past though, we must allow for a bit of flexibility as to what was considered a Hansa town, or what was merely an affiliate. For instance, the right to trade in Norway was granted in 1376 in bulk to various towns in the Low Countries who had formed another trading union known as the Cologne Confederate. This included Amsterdam, Diefenter, Kampen, and Lübeck. Lübeck was a Wendic city. Kampen and Diefenter in the Ophestikt were not, but their connectivity on the River Isel made them perfect affiliates for the Hanseatic League. Amsterdam shared the same advantages as these towns on the Isel and could arguably be called a Hanseatic city since it had been granted the Norwegian trading rights via being in this Cologne Confederate. So it's not all cut and dry when we speak about towns being Hansa towns. And of course, we can always assume that towns would just do whatever was in their best interest first and then consider the impact on any wider association with this trade network that they might belong to. The League was a loose-knit association, and although the Hansa cities often cooperated with each other, they could also disagree with each other, and towns could and would refuse to support one another if doing so went against their own interests. As we have seen, the towns of Holland and Zeeland were spreading their wings by the mid-1430s. Hanno, Holland, and Zeeland had been incorporated into the Burgundian domains after the Burgundian Duke Philip the Good finally defeated his cousin, Jacqueline of Bavaria. Remember how after defeating Jacqueline, Philip had decided that he would allow Holland to more or less continue ruling itself. First, he had put it under the nominal control of a guy called Frank van Borsela, who he then immediately felt threatened by and had removed from his office, and replaced him with a guy called Hugo van Lannoy. The position he created for them was called Stadhouder, literally meaning placeholder, a person who would act on behalf of the Duke when he was absent from those regions. The position of Stadhouder will become very important later on in the history of the Netherlands. Philip also left his second wife, Isabella of Portugal, to keep an eye on things in general. The Hanseatic League was well entwined in markets all throughout Philip's domains. Yet we have also seen how Dutch fishermen were gaining supremacy on the water and driving innovation within Dutch shipbuilding technologies. They had been busy fishing for herring in the waters near Denmark and with the newfound sailing experience they had gotten, begun risking those treacherous waters and sailing through the Sound and into the Baltic. This meant that they could reach ports further north and transfer goods without having to use the overland route between Lübeck and Hamburg. Holland's ships with Amsterdam at the forefront operated in the northern region with greater autonomy and less care for how the Wendic cities would feel about them doing it. 
The Wendig cities, by the way, did not feel great about them doing this, and they began to blockade and even sack or loot Dutch ships, coming in and out of the Danish Sound with impunity and without any permission by the Hanseatic League. In 1438, the Council of Holland, an assembly of members of the estates across the province, came together and declared that three years of such treatment by ships from the Wendig cities was enough. In rather grandiose terms, they declared their intent. Quote, To all those who see this letter or hear it read, the counsel of my gracious lord, the Duke of Burgundy and of Brabant, charged by him with the government of Holland, of Zeeland, and of Friesland, offers its friendly greetings. Uh, by the way, nobody had told the Frisians that they had a new Duke, Philip, going on. We wish it to be known that for more than three years, the people of Holland, Zeeland, and Friesland have suffered unjust and unreasonable damage to lives and goods at the hands of the Duke of Holstein and his subjects and the six Wendic towns, that is Lübeck, Hamburg, Lüneburg, Rostock, Wismar, and Stralsund. The four members of Flanders, who trade a great deal with the Hansards, persuaded our gracious lord, the Duke, to agree to hold a conference between his lands of Holland, Zeeland, and Friesland, and the above-mentioned Duke of Holstein and the six Wendig towns, which took place in the town of Bruges and then at Ghent. At this conference, a truce was arranged, which has been continued from time to time since, in the hopes that the complaints of either side might meanwhile be submitted in writing to arbitrators in order to achieve a settlement. But the deputies of the Duke of Holstein and the Wendig towns refused to accept arbitrators and planned to ally with the Prussians and other Hanseatic towns to retaliate for the damages they claimed to have suffered in Holland, Zeeland, and Friesland. Consequently, the nobles and towns of Holland, Zeeland, and Friesland have asked us to allow and permit them, in the name of our gracious Lord of Burgundy, Count of Flanders, to recover the value of the damage they have suffered from those who cause it. And we, unable to deny this, have consented and agree on behalf of our gracious Lord of Burgundy, Count of Holland, that the Duke of Holstein's subjects and those of the six Wendic towns may be damaged, seized, and injured in lives and goods wherever they can be found, and that in future no one shall take any merchandise eastwards by sea. End quote. That's right. Hollanders and Zeelanders were no longer going to meekly accept this treatment by the Wendic cities, and as such, the battle cry had gone out. Ships in Holland and Zeeland were given two weeks' notice to prepare to sail, and the administrations and armed forces of all the towns of Holland were to prepare for war. Eighty ships known as Bardsen were to be built by the Holland towns within two weeks' time. Amsterdam would contribute the most, with four, but other towns which... In our endeavor to butcher Dutch place names, we know it's one of your favorite things that we do, we are going to list alphabetically included Alkmaar, Briel, Beverwijk, Enkhuizen, Edam, Goes, Gorinchem, Goederede, Harlem, Horn, Medemblik, Muiden, Vlissingen, Veerde, Veenhuizen, Weesp, Voorde, and Vestzaan. They would all be required to contribute to this united effort. 
What was to follow over the next three years was not so much a war in the traditional sense of land battles and naval encounters, but rather a series of privateering raids, boat hijackings, and trade blockades, which had massive economic consequences for both sides. The Holland fleet was out to recoup the damages which they had suffered from these seizures made by the Wendick towns, but also they needed to secure access to the most valuable resource that came from the Baltics, the grain. As a result of the subsidence of the sphagnum, which occurred as a byproduct from the land reclamation that had been happening in Holland, big swathes of it had become unsuitable for agriculture, a fact compounded by large-scale flood events such as the St. Elizabeth's Day Flood of 1421. As such, Hollanders relied on grain coming from France or the Baltics, both of which were now threatened because of the political conflict emerging between them and the Hanseatic League. When poor weather created crop failures in successive years in the 1430s, the Low Countries were hit by rising food prices and widespread famine, described in the Tilsa Chronique as follows, quote, In 1438 there was such a dearness and famine in the entire Netherlands, so that one did not know how to complain about poverty and moan on misery, end quote. Given these circumstances, the war was waged not only for revenge on these attacks on their ships, but also to secure Holland's ability to be able to literally continue feeding itself. Furthermore, grain was an essential ingredient in one of the most widely used, lucrative, and essential products of the age, that most nourishing of liquids for the medieval body and soul, beer. This conflict was then made more complicated by the fact that the different towns of the Hanseatic League did not always agree with or help each other. The Hansa towns of Prussia and Livonia, as well as the Zaudersee towns of the Overstick, did not support the Wendic cities in this conflict. They declared their neutrality. While this was all good and well in theory, in practice it changed nothing. Ships from Holland would still have to stop every single boat they came across on the North Sea, just in case they happened to be a Wendick ship just flying under a neutral flag, attempting to get through the blockade by deception. Also, even though the ships may have been ordered from on high to respect neutrality, this didn't necessarily mean that those on board actually carrying out the orders were actually going to follow them. In early May 1438, a fleet made up of 54 large and 50 small ships under the command of some mayors of Amsterdam set sail to go and confront a Hansa fleet of 11 Wendic ships and 23 Prussian ones nearby Brest in France. A few months before the outbreak of war, the Hansa ships had sailed past Zeeland on their way south going to collect salt and they'd been reassured by the Admiral. Hendrik van Borsela, that their neutrality would be respected in the upcoming conflict so long as they stopped in Zeeland on their way back from France so their ships could be searched. The Hollandic fleet confronted the Hansa ships nearby Bresse, but those from the Wendig cities immediately sailed into the town to avoid being captured. The Prussian ships, meanwhile, thinking their neutrality would be respected, not the last time that mistake will be made in this area, agreed to sail 
under escort of the Hollanders back to Zeeland. Upon arrival, their ships were immediately seized, their cargoes plundered and declared spoils of war, and their crew put to land to journey back to Prussia by foot. Ouch. This was, perhaps, intended to send a message to all of the Hunza towns that the Hollanders were not messing around, and that they were prepared to do whatever it took to ensure their freedom to sail through the Danish Sound. The Burgundian rulers were extremely displeased with this independent action taken by the Hollandic shippers. By ignoring the neutrality of the Prussian ships, they had risked bringing the wrath of the Grand Master of the Teutonic Order down on Burgundy, all because some Hollandic fishermen couldn't tow the line. Excuse the pun. Piracy and privateering offered small rewards for those undertaking it, but could have massive diplomatic ramifications. But with what power was Philip going to stop them? Well, Philip decided that it was time he reined things in a bit in Holland. He dismissed Hugo van Lenoy as Stadtholder, instead appointing a new man named Willem van Lalaing. As argued by Ad van der Zee in his book De Wendische Oorlog, The Wendig War, this was the moment when the Burgundians really began to take proper control of Holland. In September 1439, privateering was ordered to stop. Throughout that year, though, the war did continue. Much of the sea traffic in the north and the Baltic seas had been ground to a halt as a result of the conflict, so the Dutch fleet floated around rather aimlessly, much to the displeasure of the ship's captains and crews who had been hoping for, you know, a little bit more plunder. The Hollanders and the Wendig cities then both got involved in an internal conflict happening in Denmark, with the Dutch backing the incumbent king, Eric, against a challenge by his nephew, Christopher, who was supported by the Wendigs. Philip the Good didn't like privateering, but he apparently didn't mind getting involved in dynastic disputes. Unfortunately, however, they all got involved on the wrong side of this affair because Eric would lose and Christopher would become king. This didn't stop the Dutch, though. After winter hiatus in 1440, they returned and occupied Helsingborg and Helsingor, and then went ravaging, taking control of castles all along the Sound. The new King Christopher was not one apparently to hold a grudge, because when a new fleet of Hansa ships, manned by many of his own soldiers actually, set out to go and meet the Dutch in battle, he actually sent warning to the Dutch in advance and gave them sufficient time to make a hasty exit. The Dutch fleet then sailed back to Holland, but not necessarily with its tail between its legs, nor with the war over. The Dutch occupation of so much of the Sound, and especially of Helsingborg and Helsingor, would have given the Wendig towns and the Hanseatic League a frightful glimpse at a nasty prospect that the Dutch and particularly the towns of Holland and Zeeland, now constituted a naval power which could definitely throw its weight around. For their part, the Wendig cities were not slow in communicating their desire for a cessation in hostilities. Lübeck itself would propose at a Hansa diet for everyone to consider under which conditions they should ask Holland for peace terms. 
The powers that be in Holland, however, decided this was the moment to increase their leverage against the Wendig cities, and to make it clear that they were very much still up for continuing this fight. Around early March 1441, while the Hansa fleet still remained docked for winter, Holland sent 15 well-armed Bardsen ships up the River Elbe to where several merchant ships, as well as the Wendig war fleet, was resting. The Dutch stole the merchant ships and poured molten lead into the locks of the gate that blocked the harbour, meaning that the Wendig fleet could not give chase. This cheeky Hollandic fleet did not then simply go home with their spoils, but sailed up the Weser River to another mooring spot for Wendig ships and did the same thing all over again. Then, to really drive the point home, apparently the whole Dutch fleet went and sailed around Denmark's northern cape, Skagen, and made their presence known to other Wendig cities. Hamburg and Lübeck and the others put out calls for help to their allies within the wider Hanseatic trading network, but these neutrals refused once more to get involved. Some, in particular those Hansa-affiliated towns on the Zuiderzee coast in the Overstick, held their own trade talks with Holland. Then word spread that Holland's ships had appeared off the west coast of France and were in range of the important Hansa salt harbours that were there. All of this created enough angst within the Wendig cities that when Holland finally put peace talks on the table, they were readily accepted. A date was set for in Copenhagen, and in June, the delegates from the Wendig side began turning up. And then they waited for Team Holland to rock up and join the party. And then they waited some more. And they waited some more. At least it was summer, because they would end up waiting for two months. When the representatives from Amsterdam, Harlem, Delft, Den Briel, Leiden, Horn and Zierikzee, along with four councils and a secretary of Philip the Good, finally arrived in August, they would have made it very clear that they were not going to be cowed in these negotiations. It took only two weeks before a 10-year truce was agreed to. Holland received very favourable terms, being the restoration of all their former trading privileges in the north, including the passage for their ships going through the Sound. They had to pay some reparations to the neutral Prussians for the damage they had caused when they'd taken their salt fleet in 1438 and made all their men walk back to Prussia. But ultimately, the Dutch had achieved their aim for this war, which was to maintain free sailing rights in the Danish Sound without having to suck up to the demands of the Hanseatic League. Most importantly, they had secured their access to the quantities of grain in the north which could sustain their growing population. Even though there are going to be more lucrative trades in Holland's future, this one will be forever known as the mother of trade. Such would be its continued importance. By their belligerence, the Dutch had shown the Wendig cities and by association anyone involved with the Hanseatic League that the towns of Holland were now both willing and able, a force to be reckoned with on an international level. Though the Hansa would carry on for a long time after this, in this war Holland had exposed some major cracks in it, cracks which over the years would be exploited by other powers in the regions it operated, and that 
ultimately would contribute to the demise of the League in the 17th century. It was around the conclusion of this war that the towns in the Overstict began to lose ground to those up-and-coming towns in Holland in terms of their importance to the trade and economy of the region. Holland had been waging naval war for centuries. We have seen it in their attempts to deal with those frisky Frisians. The difference here, however, is that while those expeditions have been organized by the nobility playing their power games, this war was coordinated by the towns of Holland and Zeeland. We've seen time and time again, so far in our story, how towns in the Low Countries often failed to support each other due to their own rivalries. Here, however, through their cooperation and under the leadership of Amsterdam, they were able to order and execute the mobilization of a naval fleet to project their power, even when the actions they undertook went against the wishes and interests of their sovereign lord, the Duke of Burgundy. Although this would make Philip the Good begin to tighten his grip in Holland and Zeeland, this war and the fleet that they constructed is sometimes, and we think fairly reasonably pointed to, as the beginning of a Dutch national navy and of the maritime identity of Holland and especially Amsterdam. You probably won't be surprised to learn that that will become an essential part of the history of the Netherlands to come. Thanks once again, everyone, for listening, for interacting with us on the socials and for supporting us. We've got a couple of new best friends, new Patreon supporters. Thank you very much to Jeffrey Babcock, Cece. CC has chucked in five bucks an episode, so we're going to say your new awesome nickname five times. CC, 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 CC. And of course, also to Altcode, who has supported us on Patreon, but may just be a bot. So, tar body. Finally, don't forget to visit our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. We make maps, or at least Dave does, and we give them the thumbs up. All our sources are there, and so too are as comprehensive and definitive show notes as we can muster making the night before release. So go check it out. Till next time, doei. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.